As a pastor, one of the privileges that I have is to perform weddings. I love to participate in weddings. I think most pastors do. It's a great opportunity to celebrate with a couple as they come together to join and hopefully create a relationship that under ideal circumstances will reflect that relationship between Jesus and the church. And so it's a great chance to participate in that, but I've noticed over the years that husbands and wives, brides and grooms, often bring certain fears to the table that they carry into that wedding day. So for the brides, I've often noticed that the fear will manifest itself as stress over the events of the day, over the details. That's probably because she is usually the one most responsible for those details. So she may get stressed out about the flowers or the cake or the singer or whatever it may be. And uh, depending on her personality, she may carry that inside or she may allow everybody to participate in that stress with her. It just kind of depends on what kind of bride she is. Grooms, though, seem to experience a whole different set of fears, maybe because they are freed from the uh, constraints of trying to plan the wedding. Their fears tend to focus on, oh my goodness, I'm about to be a husband. And so uh, I've seen grooms begin to process just sort of this realization that, uh, you know, every goldfish I've ever had has died. How am I going to care for and love another person well? And so all of a sudden they are facing this big day with a great deal of concern about whether they're adequate for the task. So I've seen grooms uh, be unable to just simply repeat the wedding vows clearly. So you'll say, you know, I, John, take you, Mary, and he'll go, I... Right? And you're like, John, right? Your name is John. You know, and, and they have a hard time remembering. I've seen uh, grooms pass out, just faint. I've never actually seen that happen to a bride, but I have seen it happen to guys or have to sit down because they're about to faint. Uh, I remember one groom uh, disappeared about 45 minutes before the ceremony, and none of us could figure out where he had gone. And we were concerned. Maybe he just fled, you know, in his fear and just was gone. Uh, finally, about five minutes before the ceremony was to begin, he appeared and we said, hey man, where have you been? Uh, we've been pretty worried. And he told us that he had been in the bathroom uh, vomiting out of fear and nervousness for quite some time. All of his groomsmen and me were like, have you brushed your teeth, right? This is an important <laughs> question to ask before we go in there. He was so concerned, and the concern was this, what if I can't cut it as a husband? What if I don't have what it takes? What if I'm inadequate? Now, you may have never been in that situation, but I think you can relate to that feeling of, man, I'm just not up to whatever it is I'm supposed to do. I can remember when we had our first child and it was time to leave the hospital. Uh, We have this baby and I kept expecting the staff as we're walking out the door to come up and go, "Uh, we just found out you don't know what you're doing. We're taking the baby, right? And I would have gone, yeah, you're right. We don't. We have no idea. You're just letting us walk out of here with a live person and we don't know what we're doing. Felt totally inadequate. Maybe for you it was when you started college as a freshman, and you looked around and you went, I have no idea how I'm going to make it through college, what I'm going to major in, what I'm going to do later. Uh, Maybe it is some relationship that you have that just seems confused or difficult, and you don't know how to plow forward. Maybe you have been in a job where you've gotten there and thought, I don't have the skill sets to do this job, and so you feel inadequate. But my guess is that virtually everybody in here has faced a moment in time where you've said, man, I am just not good enough. 
If you know Jesus, the odds are that you face those sort of moments in your relationship with him as well. Because we've been given an amazing opportunity to share the gospel and to reflect Jesus in our world, in a world that is hostile often to the truth of the gospel, and yet it's also scary. And so it may be that you feel God calling you to move into, for example, your family that may not know Jesus and may be dysfunctional and chaotic, and you say, "Uh, that is scary because I don't have the courage, I don't have the ability to share Jesus boldly and truthfully in this setting. Or maybe at work, maybe you are in a work environment that is not agreeable to the truth of Jesus Christ or His Word. And you know God is calling you to go into that environment and be a light for Jesus Christ, but you're afraid. It may be that there's some sin struggle in your life or some trial that you're having to walk through and you say, I just simply don't have the strength to overcome this sin, to keep going forward with Jesus in the midst of this pain, and you feel inadequate. If you ever feel that way, you are in very good company. In fact, you're in biblical company. As you look through the lives of these great men and women of God throughout the ages, you see that many of them, if not most, felt terribly inadequate to do what God had called them to do, and yet God called them to step forward toward a supernatural task and trust Him to provide supernatural resources to get the job done. We're going to look at the life of Joshua over the next couple of weeks, and this morning we're going to be in Joshua chapter 1. And we will see in the life of Joshua that we have just this sort of a person who is called to do something that is really astounding and really impossible on his own. And he's afraid. Joshua is following in the footsteps of Moses. I don't need to really explain who Moses is to you. You know the name of Moses, the greatest leader in the history of Israel. Joshua is following him. And he's called to move into the land God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants and claim that land for the people of God. And in the face of this enormous task, we see that Joshua is afraid. And yet God will move him through that fear, move him through his inadequacy, and provide everything he needs, and then even reward him for obeying. Before we dive into the story of Joshua this morning, think about your life for just a moment. Is there something in your life that you sense God is calling me to step forward and follow him even though I'm afraid? If not, it may be that your goals for your life are too small. It may be that they're not supernatural. If so, what we're going to see from the life of Joshua is that God will call us to things bigger than we can do and then resource us in every way to do them. And so as you stand, it feels on the edge of a cliff, and you say, all right, God is pushing me forward in a new direction in my walk with Him in my family, in my marriage, in my work, and it feels scary. God may call you to step forward and trust him that he'll provide all the resources necessary to fulfill that task. Let's look at how he does that in the life of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. 
Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. All right, the first thing that we're going to see as we look at Joshua is that God's tasks are bigger than our ability. God has given Joshua an utterly enormous task. And one of the ways that we know that a a job comes from God is that it can only be accomplished through God's power. In other words, you may be able to do some great things in your own ability, but when God gives a task, he makes sure that it's a task for which you must depend on him. And he does that here with Joshua. We all know that people can be pretty smart, pretty resourceful, pretty strong when they want to. I remember a few years ago on the 40th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, I read an article about how it came to be, the very first man on the moon. And it was an interesting story because what happened, as many of you know, is 1961, essentially, uh, President Kennedy just stood up and kind of said, by 1970, we're going to the moon. We're going to put a guy there. And they had no idea how that was going to happen, how much it was going to cost. They didn't even really know that much about the moon. In fact, Chris Kraft, who ended up being the ground control director for that uh, flight, he said, you know, I had to go in and brief the president on behalf of NASA, and he said, we had no idea what it was going to take. We thought that there might be terrible viruses that the astronauts would get that they could carry back to Earth that would wipe out the planet. We thought they might step off of the lunar module and sink into moon dust over their head and disappear. We didn't know the cost. We didn't know how we were going to get there, but we had to come up with a plan. Eight years later, they landed a man there. That's pretty impressive. But what we see from the scripture is although it's impressive, it's not supernatural. And what you see with Joshua is God gives him a task that is supernatural. I want to talk for just a moment about what God actually calls Joshua to do, because it's something that ultimately only God will be able to accomplish. First of all, Joshua is following in the footsteps of Moses. Twice here in the first two verses, they remind us that that Moses is dead. In fact, God says to Joshua, Joshua, Moses is dead. And you imagine Joshua going, yeah, I know, I caught that, right? We followed Joshua for all of these years. Now he's dead, and God says, I want you to stand into his place. Now, Moses is known, Numbers 12, it says, Moses is the humblest person alive, right? That's how great he is before God. Now, Moses didn't write that part of Numbers, right? Somebody wrote that probably after Moses was gone. Moses didn't like, I am the humblest man alive, right? That's how he's described, though. He is the humblest man alive. Deuteronomy 34 says that before Moses, there was nobody like him, no leader like him. After Moses, there was no leader like him. Moses stands head and shoulders above everybody else. That's who Joshua is supposed to follow. Moses was there when they left Egypt. And he was there when they went into the wilderness. And he was there when the people rebelled against God and he interceded between the people and God and he spoke to God face to face. And now he's gone. I don't know if you've ever had to follow a great leader or perhaps you stepped into a job and there was somebody before you who just did it amazingly and then left and everybody talks about that person and how wonderful they were and here you are trying to step into those shoes. That happened to me Uh, When my wife and I lived in Dallas, the first church position, actually, real church position that I got was leading worship at a church in Dallas, and I was following a guy who had done the job for about 15 years, and everybody loved him, and he was the best person on the planet, right? And so I came in, and immediately the comparisons began. His songs aren't as good. 
He's young and inexperienced. His, his music is newfangled. This guy's music was classic and timeless and godly, and I don't know what this guy's playing. And they actually, they had a meeting, and they invited me to the meeting to talk about the worship, and the pastor was there, and all the members of the worship band were there, and they started talking about my worship and what they didn't like. And he's doing this, and he's doing this, and he's doing this, and I'm going, I'm here. Like, I hear you, what you're talking about, right? They're not looking at me, but they're talking to the pastor, and the pastor goes, yes, I know. I wasn't ready for this guy to leave, and he was awesome, and we all know Matt's not this guy, but we'll do the best we can, right? And I remember thinking, I'm here, like I hear you, right? (laughs) Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, but it's intimidating and it's scary, and you think, how will I ever measure up? That's where Joshua finds himself. He is not just following somebody who is good. He's following Moses, who led them across the Red Sea, out of Egypt, who interceded for the people before God. And now he's gone. And Joshua has to stand in his place. And God says, Joshua, what you're going to do is you're going to cross the Jordan River with these people. And you're going to take the land that I promised to the nation. That's a pretty tough task in and of itself. It's not just that he's following a great leader. He's got an impossible task. It's probably April or May at this point, and the Jordan River is essentially at its flood stage. All of the water from the surrounding mountains, all of the snow from the surrounding mountains has melted and come down into this river. And so it's three or four hundred feet across, and it's deep, and there are gorges on either side of it. It was considered a heroic act to swim across the Jordan River during the spring. So the spies who had gone some 40 years earlier into the nation in order into the land to spy it out, they had probably swum across this river at this stage. But remember, Joshua is now standing here with two million people, children and women and older people, and they've got to cross this river at its highest point, go into the land, and take over these enormous fortified cities. And if you remember, when the spies, when the 12 spies from Israel had gone there 40 years before, 10 of them came back and they said, look, the land is great. I mean, here's some of the fruit. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's huge. The fruit is great. The land is great. It's everything we want, but there's one problem, and that is the people are enormous, And we're like grasshoppers, and we cannot take it. They have fortified cities. They have huge walls. I'll show you next week a picture of a wall of a Canaanite city that they found in an archaeological dig. Huge walls, huge cities, huge people. We can't do it. All of those who listened to those ten spies died in the wilderness. Joshua and Caleb are alive because they're the ones that said, now we can do it because God is with us. And so now here's Joshua after the death of Moses, and God says, time to put your money where your mouth is. And he gives him a supernatural task, a task that only God can do. Now, you and I are not going to be called to go conquer a land or a country, right? We're not going to rush Oklahoma after the service unless you want to, right? And so we're not called to do that. But we are called to a supernatural task. If you look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus' last words before he ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he calls us to make disciples of all the nations, and every one of us will be a part of that, although it may look different for individuals. But what that means essentially is we're called to go in the world and say, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did, that he died and he rose again to give us eternal life. We are called to walk in his footsteps 
to reflect the fruit of the Spirit. A love that is supernatural, that can only come from God. And if you're like me, often I say, you know, I am not qualified to be a representative of Jesus Christ because I'm sinful, I'm weak, I don't have the talent, the ability, the personality that that guy over there does. And so I can't do this task. I can't reflect Jesus well. I can't share the gospel as I'm called to do. I'm afraid. It's a supernatural task. Similar to the task that God gave Joshua, it's a task that can only be completed with the power of God. Now, the great news that we see in the next part of the passage is this, that he doesn't just give the task and then say, see you, Joshua, but instead, God also gives him the resources to do the job. God's provision is sufficient for the task. Look at verses 3 through 6. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. God promises Joshua that he will give him the resources for this task. When God gives you a task, it's not only that it's bigger than what you can do, but God gives you everything you need to do it. He doesn't give you a job and then fail to give you the tools. Uh, Several years ago, I was building a little jungle gym in the backyard for my daughter. And if you've ever done a household job or anything without the right tools, it can be very frustrating. And uh, it was this big sort of wooden monstrosity and there were all kinds of screws and things that needed to be put into wood. And at first I was working with a friend and we both just had regular kind of hand screwdrivers. And there's like a billion little screws that had to go into this thing, right? And so we're twisting these screws and we're twisting them. And after a few minutes, our arms are getting tired. We're starting to sweat and it's hot. And my friend is starting to complain. Maybe I want to leave, he's saying, you know, and I'm like, please don't. And He finally did, and so I'm out there by myself and doing this, and I got like, I don't know, one one one-hundredth of this thing built. And I went inside, and I sat down, and I thought, I'm never going to finish it. And then I remembered my power drill, right? And I walked out to the garage, and I got it, and I put a little bit on it, and all of a sudden, I could turn that thing on and get those screws, and zoom, zoom. And I thought, I'm a good builder, right? And all of a sudden, this began to go really fast and I got it done within a matter of maybe a couple of days. I had this thing built and I realized the tools make a huge difference in getting the job done. I was inadequately resourced when I first tried to do it. Now, the great thing about God is he doesn't simply give you a task and say, all right, go make disciples of all the nations. See ya, right? No. He says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. With Joshua, look at what he promises Joshua. He gives him the reiteration of the promise that he spoke to Moses, that the whole land would belong to them. That promise did not originate with God speaking to Moses. It actually goes all the way back, remember, to Abraham. And God had said to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, I will fulfill this promise that I will give this people this land. And as we sang before, he has never failed before and he's not going to start now. His promises remain. And so God reiterates the promise and reiterates the promise and reiterates the promise. And we get to Joshua and he says, you still have this promise 
that the land will belong to you. And he goes further and he says, Joshua, I'm going to give you my presence. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to walk away. I'm not going to drop you and say, Joshua, see ya. My presence will go with you. And then he promises him his power. He says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Joshua goes, okay. Second time, no, Joshua, strong and courageous. All right, all right. Joshua, strong and courageous. Okay. Why does he say it three times? Well, actually, it's interesting. In Hebrew, if you repeat something, that's like making it bold on your typewriter or italicizing it or underlining it, using all caps, right? You repeat it twice, it means, I really mean it. You repeat it three times, I really, really mean it, right? So that's why we'll see when the angels worship God, what do they say? Holy, 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 right? Today, we just put all caps, make it flash, whatever, Three times, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. Why does he have to say that three times to Joshua? Because Joshua is not strong and courageous. God says, my power will go with you. I've given you a promise. I give you my presence. I give you my power. I will resource you for this job. Now again, we're not called to that task. That was for the nation of Israel at that time. You're not going to go take over a country, but you are called to represent a Savior. And the great news is, not only is his presence with us, but if you know Jesus this morning, if you have trusted that Jesus died and rose again to provide you eternal life and to forgive your sin, if you believe that and the Spirit of God lives in you, it's not just that God is with you, God lives in you and empowers your actions and your thoughts and your words so that those things that seem impossible are now possible. Romans chapter 8, 11, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So in those moments where you say, I don't think I can go to work and reflect Jesus and share that Jesus died and rose again. I don't think I can walk into my crazy, chaotic, dysfunctional family and share Jesus. I don't think I can overcome this particular sin. You look at Romans 8 and you say, wait a second, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me. And if He could raise Jesus from the dead, He can give me the power to obey. I have new life because of what he has done. And so I want you again for a moment to think about those tasks in your life that feel impossible, for which you feel inadequate, that you say, God is calling me to step forward in faith and trust him, but I'm afraid to do it. And as I look at the life of Joshua, I think God would say, good. You're at the right place right now. You know you can't do it, but I can. I've not failed before. I never made a promise that I revoked. I will give you everything you need to obey. And so he does that in the life of Joshua, and he'll do that in our lives as well. And each day, each moment, we have that opportunity to say, will I trust him? Will I trust him? that the Spirit of God that lives in me is sufficient for the task that I'm called to do. And the great news is 
that not only does God give these tasks to us, not only does he entrust them to us, and then he gives us the resources to do them, but he also then rewards us for doing his will. So he says, look, I'm going to call you to this task, and I'm going to provide all that you need for the task, and then even beyond that, I'm going to reward you for obeying. Look at verses 7 to 9. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He tells Joshua this, as long as you will trust me, as long as you will obey and you will look at me as the only God, then I will reward your path. In other words, I will lead you into this land. You will have success. You will be prosperous. Now, for them, that literally meant they would live on the land in peace from their enemies, reigning over this kingdom that God established among the nation. And he says, as long as you obey me, as long as you worship me, as long as you follow this law, you will stay there because I can be trusted. If you depart from me, then you won't stay there. And in fact, you see this played out in the history of the nation of Israel, that they often would depart and begin to believe that idols were more trustworthy than God. And then they'd be removed from the land. And the reason is this. If the presence of God is not there, it's just a bunch of dirt. If God's presence is in their midst, it's holy ground. And he says, as long as you trust me, You'll have peace, success, prosperity in this land for those people. He says, Joshua, you can trust me. Now, it's interesting as you walk through the book, for the most part, Joshua never takes a step forward toward a battle without consulting God. The one time we see that he does is catastrophic. We see it in Joshua chapter 7, right on the heels of their victory at Jericho. They go to a city called Ai. And Joshua doesn't consult the Lord. And they look and they say, you know what? It's a small city. We just need a few people. And a few of the Israelite soldiers go up and they're absolutely creamed. And it turns out there was sin in the camp that they didn't know about, that they hadn't dealt with. And because they did not trust God, he didn't pave the way forward. But when they did, they had success after success after success in battles that were from human in human terms, impossible to win. God says, I will provide everything you need and then I'll reward you. Now again, our task is not the same. God has not promised us material success. We aren't the nation of Israel. God has not promised us this sort of prosperity. But what he has promised us is that in the task he's called us to do, to represent Jesus, he will be with us. And in fact, there is reward for those who are faithful. Now I want to be clear. There is no way you can earn eternal life. If you're in here this morning and you have trusted in Jesus for forgiveness of your sins and eternal life, that can never be taken away and you did not earn it, right? Romans chapter 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, if you have believed Jesus, believing in Jesus is how you know you have eternal life. You didn't earn it. There's no good thing that you did to earn that. However, God looks at you and me and he says, nonetheless, I created you. I 
saved you from your sin. I gave you eternal life. I gave you the Spirit, and I still want to reward you and reward you and reward you and bless you for faithfulness. And so as you look throughout the Scripture, for those who know Jesus, there are rewards promised for those who will persevere, for those who are faithful. There is a future rest. In fact, Hebrews chapter 8 says it this way. Hebrews chapter 4, excuse me. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. In other words, Hebrews says there is still a rest that Joshua couldn't bring the people into. There is a future eternal kingdom of God where those who persevere and follow him, God will say, I want to reward you for doing what I've asked you to do. And Paul talks about crowns throughout the New Testament that are given to those who persevere. Second Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, God says, I've given you a wonderful task to represent me. I've given you everything you need to do it. And guess what? I'm even going to reward you above and beyond because we have a gracious and merciful and generous God that one day we'll stand before Jesus and we have the opportunity to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We have the opportunity to reign alongside him in his kingdom. And God lavishes those gifts on us. It's really amazing. Those of you who are parents, perhaps you give your kids uh, a weekly allowance of some kind. If you're not a parent, maybe you got something like this when you were a kid. You know, maybe it's five bucks a week or something along those lines. And so uh, you give them maybe this allowance. Some of you, you, you may not, right? You're under no obligation to give them the allowance. Certainly, you can say, I already give them allowance, right? I allow them to live in my home. I allow them to eat my food, right? So that is an allowance. Others of you, you may say, okay, I'm going to give you a weekly allowance. And you say, all right, $4.50 of this money is yours to do with what you please. But I would like you to consider giving 50 cents or whatever to the church, And so they come in and they obey and they do it and you go, man, I'm so proud of them. And maybe the next week they come in and they do it on their own without being asked. You go, wow, I'm so proud. In fact, I'm so proud. I'm going to take you to your favorite restaurant today and we'll have whatever you like, right? Tacos, burgers, whatever it is you want. I'm going to reward you for being generous. Now think about that for a moment. You helped give the child life. They live in your home. The money they have came from you. You gave them the instruction Literally, there's nothing in that transaction that you didn't empower. And we see the same thing as we look at how God interacts with his people. He made us. He saved us. He gave us his spirit. He gave us his word. He gave us all he wanted us to have. And then when we obey, he goes, "Ah, I'm going to keep giving and giving and giving and giving. That's the God we know and serve. And he says, I will reward those who are faithful to what I've called them to do because I love them. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. The men are going to come forward and start to prepare. And as they do, what we're going to move toward in communion, we are going to celebrate that God has given us so much through Jesus. 
that he died and rose again to save us from sin and death and hell and has given us eternal life and he's given us his spirit and we can know him and his spirit is the one who is now calling us to step out in faith to fulfill the tasks that he wants us to fulfill. And as we prepare for communion, there's a couple of questions I want us to meditate on in that regard. All right, one is this. What supernatural task is God calling you to accomplish? Are there tasks, are there things in your life that you say, you know what, I know that it is only going to be through God's power I can do that. If not, again, if we don't have those things in our life, our goals are probably too small. Now, for some of you, it may be that it's going to be a supernatural effort just to make it to another day because of the pains and the pressure and the struggles that you're facing. And you're going to go home today and you're say, God, all I need is to make it to Monday and then to Tuesday and to keep putting one foot in front of the other until I am at a place where I can serve you. For others, it may be that you're in a whole different place and you say, God is now, I know, calling me to serve, to speak the truth, to share the gospel, to be faithful in ways that make me uncomfortable and, in fact, that I really know I can't do because I am weak, because I am sinful, because I'm afraid, because I'm timid, because I lack ability. And God says, you step forward and I will provide the resources. What supernatural task is God calling you to accomplish? And will you trust him for the strength and courage to do that? Just as God said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. That strength, that courage come from him because we are not strong. We are not courageous. We're weak and afraid, just as Joshua was. And so thank God for his spirit and his power to help us accomplish those, his spirit and power that comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we'll celebrate communion in a couple of moments. Communion is an opportunity for us to reflect upon what Jesus did when he died for us in our place for our sin. Um, It's for any of those who have trusted in Jesus for eternal life. And as we look back and remember his death, we're also able to look back and remember that he is risen and that because of his resurrection, we look forward to the day when he will return and we will have eternal life with him on a restored earth a new heavens and a new earth, forever and ever. And so as we celebrate communion, we also have the opportunity to celebrate new life, that in Jesus we have new life through the power of the Spirit to do his will. So that's what we're going to do this morning. First Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you that you have given us so much. You love us and have placed us here to represent you in your image. You love us so much that even in our sin and rebellion against you, you gave a Savior. 
who died for us and rose again. And Father, we're grateful that through him we know we can continue to serve you, continue to tell others about you, and continue to do your will. We thank you for your promises, which never fail, and for your mercy, which is new every day, and for your loving kindness, through which we have eternal life. We're grateful. I pray as we go out, you would empower us for your service. I pray we would take those steps of faith where we feel afraid or scared, that we would do those things that you are calling us to do, even when they're difficult. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.